Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. What are the seven most important prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah? Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. Really excited today to be joined by a friend, Dr. David Mishkin. And Dr. David uh, Mishkin serves on the faculty of Israel College of the Bible. He is the author and editor of several books, including a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, as well as a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. Just an amazing uh, scholar on these topics and really insightful uh, and resources, but really blessed to have him on today. So, David, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so again, what I wanted to do with this one is just start off from the top and just kind of count down some of these prophecies and then get into the importance of the background um, of the Jewish context and things like that for various topics. But, you know, we're heading into the Christmas season and we're thinking about the birth of Jesus and the arrival, the advent coming of Jesus. And so I thought it'd be fun to just kind of walk through these. So maybe let's just count down these seven to one, um, you know, and, and there's lots of them we could pick, but what would you pick? Let's start with number seven in terms of the number seven prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah. Well, I'm not sure I could limit it to seven or going from seven to one or one to seven, but because you mentioned we are a few weeks away from Christmas, um, there's a prophecy I like because it's so simple. Uh, in the book of Micah, chapter 5. Now, in the Hebrew, it's verse 1. In the English, it's verse 2. Uh, but it talks about the one who will be born, a ruler, who would come and be born in Bethlehem. Now, as far as uh, what some people call a proof text, you might say, well, big deal. A lot of people are born in Bethlehem. Uh, and for that matter, a skeptic would say, we can't even prove that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I would say, you know, you're actually right on those two things, but let's look a little bit more closely. Um, throughout history, after the time of Jesus, there have been a lot of people who've claimed to be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. Now, I'm well aware that a skeptic would say that Jesus uh, is somebody who falsely claimed to be the Messiah. But when I look at these, there are three famous false messiahs in history. The first one you probably heard of in the second century was called Bar Kokhba. This was during the second Jewish revolt, which was between the years 132 and 135. Uh, Rome, once again, after the temple was destroyed in the year 70, that was the beginning of the scattering of the Jewish people. But now we're in the second Jewish revolt, and there was a famous rabbi called Akiva. And he said that this special person, I don't think we know his real name, this guy, is he gave him kind of the nickname Bar Kokhba, son of the star. And he said, he's the Messiah, let's follow him. Now, what's interesting at this point, there were uh, Jewish followers of Jesus and they broke ranks. They said, yes, we're Jews, we're here in Jerusalem, we're happy to celebrate the, ho you know, the holidays with you, but we already have a Messiah. So that's one thing that happened. But what, what I'm getting at here is that obviously the Romans defeated him and it was deemed that Bar Kokhba was not the Messiah. One of the most famous scholars in, in Judaism was named uh, Maimonides in the 12th century. And he said basically because Bar Kokhba lost, he, he can't be the Messiah. And I would say, well, wait a minute, where was he born? <laughs> Nobody ever said, was he born in Bethlehem? Was he not born in Bethlehem? Now, in his case, he was probably born in the vicinity, and it's even 
theoretically possible that he was born in Bethlehem. I can't say he wasn't, um, but they no, nobody checked. And before we look at anyone's messianic credentials, that's always my first question. Where was he born? Mm. Uh, the next two messianic pretenders, one was in the 1600s in Europe, Shabtai Zvi, and the other one died in 1994, who's still very, he died, but he's very popular today uh, among his, um, his students. And in all these cases, uh, we know that at least two of them absolutely were not born in Bethlehem. And the third, Bar Kokhba, it's possible, but no one, no one mentioned that. And people might also say, you know, being born in Bethlehem, somebody probably this very day or, or this week, somebody was born in Bethlehem. And I would say, yes, but somebody born there today is pretty, almost definitely uh, sure that he's not Jewish, which is definitely a messianic criteria. Um, now, the, the re remainder of that verse, Micah chapter five, again, it's verse one in the Hebrew and verse two in the English. It also talks about this ruler who, and it talks about his identity. I think we can go even further and perhaps make a case about the eternality and, you know, uh, uh, talk more about that as far as the identity of Jesus. For the moment, though, because we're uh, so close to uh, the Christmas season, uh, I just want to talk about that simple point. Now, some have tried to say, well, you know, maybe it doesn't mean this coming ruler is from Bethlehem. Uh, it means maybe he's a descendant of David. And of course, David was from Bethlehem. We have it on good authority. Some of the most authoritative Jewish texts make it abundantly clear that this passage is talking about one who would come. Obviously, Micah lived after the time of David. So if he's talking about somebody in the future, um, it, it's obviously not David. It's a descendant of David. And I just think, again, this I, I can't prove that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, and many people have been born in Bethlehem, but I think it's a good way to start when we're talking about a messianic candidate. Where were they born? What's, you know, when we start with Jesus, we have to ask, well, what's even being claimed here? And one thing that makes Jesus unique compared to, I, I think, anyone in, in Jewish history, he wasn't only a sage, and he wasn't only a healer, and he wasn't only somebody who was given the, you know, the title Messiah and, and Son of Man and Son of God all together. It's quite remarkable. So anyway, whether this is number one or number seven, I forget how we started that. I would start with Micah chapter five. Yeah, so Micah chapter five, where Jesus fits that criteria of prophecy around that and the details there of what and who Messiah would be. So that's number seven. So counting down to number six, what's number six on your list of prophecies about Jesus the Messiah. In a similar vein, something that is not supernatural and in theory could have been done by other people, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It talks about a king, and as soon as we hear king, oh, a king who will enter Jerusalem? Well, obviously, if he's a king, he's going to have a white horse. <laughs> well, this king uh, came lowly and humble, and he rode a donkey. Now, it does say, just to jump ahead in the book of Revelation, <laughs> that there will be a time when Jesus will come on a white horse, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. And uh, again, uh, I can prove that Jesus actually did ride a donkey into Jerusalem. And in theory, anyone else could have. But for one thing, this 
passage was mentioned in all four Gospels. Actually, only John specifically links it to Zechariah, but anyone reading it in, in the time it was written would have clearly understood because the people said, welcome, you know, uh, uh, you know, in the name of the Lord, and they were, they were quoting from a psalm. Clearly, they understood this was a messianic identity. So the fact that uh, right after the crucifixion, there was so much commotion. Now, you and I know it was because he rose from the dead, but even somebody who doesn't believe that would say there was a lot of activity. Makes me think that, you know what? There must have been commotion as he came into town. And these stories of the big crowds seem to be true. And once again, these three famous uh, Jewish messianic pretenders, uh, one of them was never even in Israel, anywhere in Israel his whole life. So we know he didn't write. That's Menachem Schneerson, who died in 1994. He'd never wrote it. Did he ever write a donkey in his life? Maybe. In Jerusalem, absolutely not. It's well documented he wasn't there. The other two, at various parts of their life, were in Israel, but there's no mention of that. So these are just two passages which both under the fall under the heading of Son of David. And this was also documented very early. People sometimes say, oh, the New Testament documents are so late. And uh, I guess if we compare them to Facebook <laughs> or, or today's Twitter tweet or whatever, right. uh, then, then they're late. But it's remarkably early. Let me give you one example. You've probably heard of Rabbi Hillel, who died in the first decade of the first century. Well, the first time we hear anything about him is in the Mishnah, which is 200 years later, and he's the most, one of the most famous rabbis in history. It took 200 years. With Jesus, we already have the Pauline epistles, which is, let's say, two decades or perhaps 25 years, within 25 years. And the Gospels, even if you allow for the most critical late dating, it's still remarkably early. Oh, yeah. uh, these things were attested to. Um, so this idea that the son of David has come, not only because his deeds, that's a whole other issue, but his mm -hmm. identity. He was born in the right place. And uh, this, this sign that he came lowly, so we know which Messiah he is, on a donkey. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And so real quick, give me your super quick tweet version. Define the Mishnah for someone who may not know what is the Mishnah, real quick. You mentioned that. Yeah, um, quite simply, it's, it's the oral law. Now, we see even in the New Testament, sometimes Jesus had debates with, let's say, the Pharisees or sometimes with the Sadducees. So there were already traditions. Nobody denies that there were traditions that were around for perhaps at least a few hundred years. But what developed was a belief that the oral law, this is what Orthodox or perhaps ultra-Orthodox Jews believe. They believe that when Moses was on the mountain and spoke to God and received uh, the law, he not only received what became the written law, in other words, what is our five books of Moses, he also received what's called the oral law, which was handed down. And it, it, there's a verse in the Mishnah which tells us that Moses received it, and he told it to Joshua, and Joshua told it to the elders, and eventually it goes to the prophets, and then it gets around to the people who started writing the law. So it was uh, in approximately the year 200 
of the Common Era, so really a hundred years after writing the New Testament, that it was written down. You, you know, it was claimed to be this law that was handed down, or at least the principles were handed down since the time uh, of Moses. Now, I don't know if I could say most, I think I could say most Jewish scholars don't actually accept the oral law, but it is tradition, and some of it is actually helpful in looking at the New Testament, because there are traditions which might explain what was going on in some of the scenes in the New Testament. Yeah, and so from an evangelical perspective, for example, if, if scripture is our highest authority, this would be a cultural background source that il illuminates some possibilities around the world and the life and the teachings of Jesus and the disciples. Would that be a fair, a fair, it's not authoritative in the way that the New Testament is, but it can be helpful in terms of kind of filling out some broad strokes of cultural background. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah, that, that's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. And so, and then, so that's super helpful. And then one other thing, cause you've mentioned this and I want, as people are maybe driving around or maybe working out, listen to this podcast, you said you can't prove it. And I think it's always helpful to define our terms by what we mean by prove. Right. And when I talk to our students here at impact 360, one of the things I share is like, well, proof really shows up in two categories, right? Mathematical proofs, which is not history and scientific proofs, which are kind of that repeatability kind of thing, but history doesn't work that way. So when we, when we say we can't prove something, what we mean is we can't have hundred percent historical certainty. Like we were there with a video camera rolling. But what I think you're saying is in, in terms of having a high probability of confidence from the sources we do have that are signposts that point and make that a reliable inference on those prophecies. Is that a fair way to kind of, were you add to that? Would you kind of nuance that in any different ways? I, well, I would say it's a cumulative case. Uh, some people who focus, for example, on the resurrection, and I've studied that a little bit as well, the case for the resurrection is cumulative. Mm -hmm. It's not only what happened to the disciples, and it's not only what happened to Paul and whether or not there was uh, an empty tomb. You've got to take all the evidence. So in the right. same way, looking at Jesus as the Messiah, you've got to put it all together. Absolutely. And so there's lots of lines of evidence to investigate, which is why it's so fascinating and faith building to study this topic. And so that's awesome. So we've looked at Micah 5.2. We've looked at Zechariah 9.9. What is number five on our countdown list of messianic prophecies about Jesus? Well, let's go with Psalm 22. And most Christians would be aware of the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some would even know that that's the beginning of a psalm written by David, Psalm 22. And the custom in those days, now, uh, the way we look at uh, scripture, uh, we have chapters and verses, and we probably have some kind of handheld device which helps us get to it immediately. Uh, they didn't have that in those days. So the way they understood certain passages is by the opening words. To give you an example, if I say to a group of evangelicals, for God so loved the world, they know exactly what I'm talking about. They might in their head finish the sentence. They might say, oh yeah, John 3.16, or they might say, uh, this is when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, and they might be picturing the scene. So by saying those words, he was um, alerting his listeners at the time to this psalm. And basically, it's a psalm, it's sometimes called the crucifixion psalm, because it sounds remarkably like somebody being crucified. Now, obviously, David wrote about a thousand years earlier, and there was no such thing as crucifixion. 
uh, it was probably crucifixion was probably uh, created or invented by the Persians, but it was unfortunately perfected uh, by the Romans, meaning they had a way, first of all, to make death absolutely certain, but more than that, to make it, it's, it's hard even to say, as painful as possible. So we could read through that, and uh, we, we learn about, I'll talk about the servant in just a minute, but it seems remarkably clear. Now, some might say, well, if you start from the crucifixion and go back, well, okay, let, let's do that. Um, but it also talks about, at the end of this psalm, how because of this servant, this is basically good news. The word good news per se doesn't actually show up in that passage, but how all the world will benefit from this. So when Jesus used those words, he was alerting people to this psalm. And the people of the day, they wouldn't have said Psalm 22, but they would have known where to look and, and what information to get from that. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating insight on that. And so Psalm 22 is one of those that fits that pattern of, of kind of messianic prophecies and texts around Jesus um, and his identity claims, and then ultimately the risen Messiah. But um, that's that's awesome. So Micah 5.2, Zechariah 9.9, and Psalm 22. So we're now we're down to number four. What's number four on your list of Messianic prophecies about Jesus? Well, this one might, this topic might include a few. You could, you could tell me uh, how many yeah. I have left. Um, <laughs> do I need, a, I remember there was an old game show. Do I need a you know, a lifeline or something. <laughs> yeah, I got um, <laughs> In Genesis chapter 22, it's the famous story where God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac to go to Mount Moriah. Um, by the way, Mount Moriah, it later tells us, the, the Old Testament tells us that that was the very place where King Solomon built the temple. And that also, by the way, was the greater area was the place where Jesus was crucified. So there's a lot of symbolism already. And it's a story that, you know, Isaac, who probably was not a young boy, a lot of times we like to, some of the cartoons in, in evangelical circles, he probably wasn't that young and he was willing in his own way, but he said, I, you know, I see the wood. <laughs> Seems like something's missing here. Where, where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. So I'm going to use, uh, a few passages to talk a little bit more about that. At the end of the story, we see that uh, Abraham was by faith ready to do this thing that we really can't even imagine. And it says the angel of the Lord with a loud voice stepped in and basically said, don't do that. And then at the end of the story, they saw what God provided, but it wasn't actually a lamb. It was a ram. And yes, God provided, but this leaves open the reality that in the future, there's another lamb. So I'm combining here Genesis 22, 8, where Abraham says God will provide the lamb. Well, where else do we see lambs? Well, obviously at Passover. Now, the Passover lamb, if we're going to get technical, is not really about atonement. We might say redemption because we were in the land of bondage, we were in Egypt, we were in slavery, we were redeemed, that's the message. So it's not quite atonement as we would have in, in the day of atonement, but it's all part of the same package. So the lamb imagery, I'm not sure if this counts as two or three, is when Abraham said God will provide the lamb. Uh, Passover, where we learn about 
the lamb, the Passover lamb, which is responsible for redemption. And the third one, well, this is going to get into another um, one of my lists. So I, I think that counts as two. But the idea of the third one's going to be Isaiah 53, which I'm sure you know is going to come. We'll hold off on that for just a second. So in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, is that the Passover Lamb? Well, okay, Passover Lamb is not exclusively or even specifically about atonement. Uh, but when you follow the dots of this lamb, uh, we have the lamb that Abraham promised, which is really a foreshadowing of something else, and the lamb of uh, Passover, which is about redemption, and Isaiah 53, where it says, uh, not only all we like sheep were have gone astray, but it talks about the servant as uh, as the lamb. And uh, so that's number whatever and number whatever. Is that four and five? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's four. That'll be four and five. That'll work. And then maybe why don't I go? Why don't I go to Isaiah 53 here? Do it. Go um, for it. Um, the way it's normally presented, and this is basically true. It's a little bit simplistic, but I'm going to say it this way anyway. Uh, there are four servant songs or basically poems in the book of Isaiah which are talking about uh, the servant of God and culminating in Isaiah chapter, the very end of 52 and all of chapter 53. Now, in the earlier servant songs, at the very first one, it's clear that the servant is Israel, but there seems to be a change. It's very clear the very first time it's Israel, but there seems to be a change. And this is one of the uh, perennially debated chapters in the Jewish Christian debate. And I'll just give you my three-point outline as to why I would argue that it's speaking about the Messiah, who we know as Jesus, as opposed to the other interpretation, which is the people of Israel symbolically. So it is true, as I said, the first reference to the servant of God and the first servant song, it absolutely says, this is Israel. Uh, but then it gets narrowed down. And, and my, my three-point uh, response would be rabbinic, righteous, and vicarious. So rabbinic is just the history of interpretation. Uh, although many Jewish people are absolutely convinced, you know, I'm talking about scholars and leaders, this is speaking about Israel. Um, that is not the earliest point of view. One of the most famous Jewish commentators in history was called Rashi, and he was French. He died in the year 1105. He commented on all the Old Testament and also all the Talmud. Okay, We mentioned earlier the oral law, the Mishnah, is the first part of the oral law. The Talmud, there's actually two Talmuds, and they're encyclopedic. Okay, There's no such thing as a pocket Talmud, or maybe there is now with an iPhone. So this scholar named Rashi was, although not the very first one to interpret Isaiah 53 in this way, he was the most authoritative. And this happens sometimes in Christian circles as well, even when we know that, uh, you know, sola scriptura in some traditions, well, if so-and-so said so, that's the interpretation. So in Judaism, if Rashi said so, you really can't argue. 
Um, but this was in the 11th century. And uh, when we look at, for example, the Talmud, there are a number of places where the, the uh, servant of Isaiah 53 is spoken about, and not once is this servant ever claimed to be the people of Israel as a group. Now, it's not only the Messiah. Sometimes it's the Messiah, sometimes one of the prophets. I think one commentator even said maybe Rabbi Akiva, but always an individual. So when, uh, ironically, the very first time in history where we learn of Jewish people seeing Isaiah 53 as um, possibly the people of Israel is actually in a Christian text in origin, the church father who was saying he was speaking to some Jews and they said it. Um, so by the time Rashi said this in the 11th century, yes, there were one or two examples of other Jewish scholars saying that it could be Israel overwhelmingly because it was in the Talmud, it was seen to be as definitely an individual and usually the Messiah. So that's the first of my three point, the rabbinic argument just from history. Uh, even if you, you know, just look at it, when the New Testament texts were written, uh, even I'm pretty sure even in critical scholarship, they're all within the first century of the common era. You know, maybe a couple of the books people would push a little bit past them, but the very first commentaries in history about Isaiah 53 really is, is the New Testament, whether you agree with it or not, uh, that's, that's where it came from. So uh, there's the rabbinic argument. The other, I, I call it the righteous argument, Isaiah 53, 11, where Isaiah, well, actually God, is speaking about my, quote, my righteous servant. Now, virtually every other chapter in the entire book of Isaiah, he's clearly speaking about Israel in, let's just say, very different language, very harsh, very negative. You know, they don't even understand, you know, chapter one, you know, uh, the way animals know some basic things. My people, you know, very negative, very sinful. This is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was not anti-Semitic. He was just bringing the words of God to his own people. And all of a sudden, this servant, chapter 53, verse 11, is referred to as my righteous servant. That's at least curious. And uh, the third point, vicarious, basically means one dying in the place of another. And that's what we see the entire sacrificial system. So obviously, books have been written about Isaiah 53 and uh, but that's, I, I, this might be, we might've jumped the gun. That could be number one <laughs> on our chart, but uh, it, it's the reason why it's probably number one is it's not just one or two verses. It begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and goes through all of chapter 53. So if it's one verse, we can debate about one or two Hebrew words, but some people call this the gospel according to Isaiah. And there are many stories of uh, uh, Jewish believers in Jesus showing this to their relatives who really don't want to hear a whole lot about Jesus. And more than once, you'll hear the story, wait a minute, this is the New Testament. I don't want to read that. That's how clearly it seems to speak of the Messiah. So definitely Isaiah 53 would be uh, one of those. That's awesome. And that's such an important passage and a great one to reflect <clears throat> on um, at any time, thinking about 
um, who Jesus is and his identity as the Messiah and eventually the Son of Man, Son of God, all of those titles, but but especially helpful in conversation uh, with with our Jewish friends who might be considering like who is is who is Jesus and how does Yeshua in that sense. So all right, so we've hit Micah five two, we've hit Zechariah nine nine, we've hit um, Psalm twenty two, we've hit Genesis twenty two with also some John one twenty nine sprinkled in there, and then we've got um, Isaiah fifty three. And so, what would be a next prophecy you'd want to highlight for us? Well, before we get to the last few, um, we need to take a look at how the New Testament quotes or alludes to the Old Testament. And one of the areas of scholarship, which is not a specific area of mine, but it's very interesting, is first of all, how the Old Testament uses the Old Testament. Now, there's a book with that name, The Old Testament Use of the Old Testament, just came out in the last few years because the prophets towards the end of the Old Testament were constantly quoting Moses and interacting with each other. I mean, it kind of was like Facebook. You know, there was an awareness, there's a, a discussion going on. And apparently, if we take a look at how they use scripture, uh, that's going to be a big clue to uh, as to how we can look into the New Testament, because it's not only always the way we would like to hear it. For example, in Matthew, especially chapter two, we seem to be bombarded by all the different ways that there is fulfillment. Well, sometimes it's literal. For example, the Micah chapter five, yes, that's easy. Um, uh, Herod was afraid and he called the leaders. Okay, what do you guys think? Where is he supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, because, and he read the passage, uh, some of those passages in Matthew chapter two are a little bit more curious. Uh, wait a minute, was that really only talking about the Messiah in its day? Perhaps Matthew was just saying in the same way something happened back then. It's not necessarily a literal prediction and so forth. So categorizing the different ways has been uh, helpful. It may not be the way we say this means that. So just as a prelude, uh, I'm going to look to the, the festivals, and I think this might be the last few uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the holiest day of the year. Leviticus uh, 23 has, it begins actually with the Sabbath, but after that, seven feasts that appear throughout every biblical year. If somebody doesn't know a lot about the festivals and they want to learn, I call this God's year-at-a-glance calendar. Just like when we open up our computer, okay, what's happening today? Okay, I've got a lunch appointment and then I have to do this. We might want to see the week. Sometimes we want to see the whole year and that's what that is. And the Day of Atonement is so important that it gets a whole chapter, Leviticus chapter 16. And basically, I mean, Day of Atonement, that's, that's what it's all about. It begins with bulls that are sacrificed for well, Aaron, in this case, the high priest and the high priest's family and the other priests uh, for the cleansing and goats. And as you probably know, there are uh, it's an all day festival involving two goats, one of which is called the scapegoat. And the high priest will ultimately put his hands on the head of one of the goats, uh, the scapegoat, and in a very real way, all of the sin of Israel would be transferred, uh, imparted to this, in a sense, the second goat. 
and then he would be sent out into the wilderness. Now, the other goat would be um, sacrificed in the way that uh, sin offering, in the way that goats or, or other animals were sacrificed uh, at other times. They actually drew lots. I wonder if the goats <laughs> understood what was going on. They, Come on, I wanted to go this way or that way. Um, but here we see a picture of, of Jesus as well. One is, yes, he is also the Passover lamb and the lamb that Abraham said uh, would be provided. And yes, the in Isaiah 53, it talks about uh, as a lamb. So he is also that. Um, but he, we can see Jesus in both of these goats, I think. One, because he died in our place. The other one, we could, we could look at it and say in the same way the goat was chased into the wilderness, it was symbolic of the fact that with God's plan, it's, you know, we don't know where the goat went. We he just sent him out to the wilderness. Um, it's symbolic of the fact that when God takes our sin, it's as if we've we've never sinned. It's not reality that we've never sinned, but it's in other words, so far away from us that um, it's it's as if we're, we're cleansed. We definitely are cleansed. Um, and of course, in the book of Hebrews chapter nine, the author makes the association. He never uses the words Yom Kippur, but uh, what we know about the author, we don't know his name. He was definitely a Jewish follower of Jesus. And he was writing to other Jewish followers of Jesus, having a very difficult time in the Roman Empire. And in those days, if somebody backed away from the faith, these people would have gone back to Judaism. And he's constantly in every chapter comparing, you know, even at the beginning, Moses is good. We love Moses. Jesus is better. Angels. Yeah, we love angels, you know. And today, if there is somebody who walks away from Jesus, he could say, well, I'm an atheist or an agnostic or a free thinker or I'm nothing, you know. But in those days, it was comparing the two. So he didn't have to say, as you know, on Yom Kippur, they understood it. So he says, he specifically speaks in chapter nine of bulls and goats, uh, how so much more, because ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus is, is real and is the ultimate and it's once and for all. So there's the imagery, even though, uh, you know, they, they, they usually don't, they definitely don't cite chapter and verse because that didn't exist. Sometimes they quote or paraphrase, uh, but that's, I think, a very small percentage of the time. When I was uh, a new believer, I grew up, I never even saw a New Testament until I was 24. So the first time I'm reading through it, every time it says this is to fulfill, you know, what Isaiah said or whatever, it happens so often. But now that I've been studying the Bible a little bit more over the years, there are so many ways the New Testament is constantly alluding to the Old Testament. You know, maybe they're um, using the same Greek as the LXX, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's not only the citation verses where they say this is to fulfill what was said by so-and-so. So Yom Kippur as, as a festival. Yeah. And that's, and there's so much, I mean, we could, we could do entire podcasts just on, on that and the day of atonement and all the connections in Hebrews, like you mentioned. So such a vital picture of who Jesus is, I behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
and so important and vital. So I love that. So is there anything else on your list of um, messianic prophecies that you'd want to hit as, as we count our way down? Those are all awesome. I mean, again, in many ways, it's completely arbitrary to pick seven, but I was just kind of throwing out a number to start with. But is there anything else that you wanted to hit? I might have one if, if you don't hit this one. Uh, well, obviously, there are many more, and seven is a good number. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Ezekiel 34, where God is speaking through the prophet and talking about how the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, basically are not doing their job. They're not feeding the flock, meaning Israel. They're not healing when people are sick. So when Jesus in um, John chapter 10 said, I am the good shepherd, that was a clear reference to um, what was happening in Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, in uh, John chapter 10, he was in Jerusalem, and people were saying, come on, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And uh, sometimes a similar question people have asked me, why didn't Jesus just come out and say, I am God? And my answer is always, he didn't speak English. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> um, but why didn't he just say, I am the Messiah. Well, the answer is a riot would have started. However, in the same passage, when he says, I am the good shepherd, and he continues with that theme, I think it's very clear because at the end of the passage of Ezekiel 34, it says somebody else is coming. And it's interesting. God says, I will be their shepherd. But then he also says, my servant, David. Now, David's been dead now 500 years or whatever the exact number is. So when we see a reference to David that many years after his life, it means a descendant of David. And isn't it interesting that the true shepherd would be God himself and this descendant of David? So obviously we could unpack that and go a lot of ways with that. But those are and, you know, there are many more. There are books dedicated to messianic prophecy. There's one called the Moody Handbook of Bible Prophecy, I believe is the name, and that goes through all of them. No, that's wonderful. That's I, I love that Ezekiel one. I, I want, I'm so glad you brought that up. Maybe let's add, as bonus coverage for the podcast, let's hit, um, do you want to sh share a little bit about Isaiah chapter nine, which is anything you'd want to share about just kind of anything around uh, the Messiah in terms of what that passage, I know that's a very common common uh, passage to be read, especially around Christmas time and Advent and things like that. And anything you'd want to highlight from that passage? Well, we learn of the birth to us, a son, uh, to us, a child is given and so forth. Um, there are um, parts, I'd have to take a look at it. There are parts which seem to uh, say that he's not only a human child being born, but among his attributes would be he would be called El Gibor, which is mighty God. And uh, that's debated because some of the names in the Old Testament, well, they, most people had a name where God was in the name. You know, God is my judge and, you know, God is great and all these various names. Uh, but this is not necessarily uh, a single name, which includes the name of God, because it would be an incredibly long name wonderful counselor, mighty God, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's the birth of a child and the attributes of this child uh, uh, seem to be divine. 
Yeah, absolutely. In the passage there, for example, for um, verse six and following, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David, as we've already talked about, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And that's just such an amazing passage and promise. I mean, there's so much context and so much richness and layering all those things in. But hopefully what people are starting to get a sense of is this story is connected at a very deep level from the beginning all the way through the Old Testament and the coming of the New Testament, the coming of the Messiah and Jesus and all the, the pictures and the prophecies and the activity of God uh, confirming who Jesus was and his own prediction of his resurrection. All those things come together. Like you were saying, this is cumulative case and this this beautiful picture. Um, the more we read scripture, the more we see uh, the promises and, and the prophecies related to, to, to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. But what I'd love to do is just um, ask you a little bit, um, and we've covered so much, is just kind of in general, why is it so important um, for us to have kind of an understanding of, of the Jewish roots of the Christian faith? I know you've edited several volumes on this, but kind of make the case for that and maybe why it helps us understand our Bibles better and more accurately. Well, yeah, I think you just gave the answer, which is not that it's an end in itself. Isn't this interesting? It's Jewish. Well, that might be true, but ultimately we want to understand the content better. And, you know, anybody who's uh, spent any time in exegesis or studying the Bible will know that we need to look at the context. What did it say in the Hebrew? What did it say in the Greek? Uh, What happened in the passage before it and after it, after that specific passage. So it's really uh, a case of just wanting to understand better, especially since in early church history, very quickly after the New Testament was written, what happened was we, we see the beginnings of this in the book of Acts. In for about 30 years, the gospel is going, the plan is uh, Acts 1-8, so in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then everywhere, It doesn't take that long to get to a part of the world that has either fewer Jewish people and eventually no Jewish people. It's a very, very small population. So unfortunately, what happened was the gospel, and this is what I'm talking about in my course now on Jewish-Christian relations, what happened was the gospel didn't get seen in its original context. When people read um, these debates between Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, they thought Jews are bad. And I would compare it, I hinted at this earlier, when Isaiah spoke against his own people or Jeremiah, it wasn't because they were anti-Jewish or anything like that. It was an in-house debate. It was purely one Jewish prophet in this case, speaking to a group of Jewish people. And you need to see things like that in the same context. Even the Gospel of John, which uses the word the Jews, the Jews, that appears 70 times in a book that's 21 chapters. So how many times average does it appear in a chapter? Let's just say a lot. And often this group called the Jews are seen as negative or against Jesus. Now, the author, John, makes it very clear that Jesus and the disciples are Jewish. 
They're celebrating the holidays. They're going up to Jerusalem. He couldn't have made it more clear. So it's not anti-Jewish. Well, what exactly did he mean by that? That's been a, a debated question. But if you're seeing this on the other side, as the gospel is now in a Gentile world where these people perhaps never met a Jewish person, it's seen as something negative. And the results of this thinking is that God has, among other things, forsaken the Jewish people. Uh, the whole reality of what's sometimes called replacement theology starts with the rivalry. There were two groups both saying, well, wait a minute, which one is the heir to the Old Testament? Is it the New Testament or is it the oral law? And um, the, the rivalry began, it was very personal. It wasn't so much scriptural. The scriptures many years later were kind of added to, to help out. So that's one very important reason to go back and see, wait a minute, I would say, I realize not all believers would say this, but God, I think it's very clear, still has a plan for the Jewish people. Uh, and that's been something that's been missing for quite a lot of the last 2,000 years. Now, in scholarship, uh, both uh, evangelicals and even Jewish scholars who are more and more starting to look at the New Testament are getting to the same page, are looking at it objectively. They still might have some different answers uh, as to whether or not it's true and things like that. But the idea of uh, the Jewish Jesus, the reason we wrote these handbooks is because, okay, it's been a few decades now. Um, most people know Jesus was Jewish. We don't have to prove that. And shocking news Paul is also Jewish. He's a little late to the party, but scholars are getting on board with that last couple of decades. Um, but we're also taking a look in our most recent book on the Gospels themselves to show that rather than being anti-Jewish, like the Gospel of John, with its use of the Jews and the Jews, uh, the, the very writing of the texts, not only the life of Jesus, but how all of this was packaged was Jewish as well. So your question was, well, why is it important? It's it's just to understand the content better. Absolutely. And as you've alluded to and, and talked about, obviously there's historical implications, there's cultural implications, there's things we could point back and, and look at all those things. So not only understanding the text itself, but also some of the division and confusion that exists even to, to today around these topics relates back to a lot of that understanding of the context a lot better. So maybe do this, maybe is there one place um, other than some of the prophecies we've talked about where you could make a connection for somebody, maybe like, okay, if I was reading my go the gospels, for example, what would be a place maybe I'm reading about maybe one of the I am statements or one of the, like, is there somewhere that's just uh, man, if I understood this, I would understand this new Testament or gospel um, better and what's going on in the context there. Is there one that you could kind of point to that would help illuminate that for people? Um, let's go back to the festivals. Um, in the Gospel of John, now again, that's the one that's sometimes criticized for being anti-Jewish. It's the only gospel that mentions Hanukkah in chapter 10, verse 22, usually by calling it the Feast of Dedication. That's what it is. But in, in uh, John chapter 7, it says in verse 2, now the Feast of Booths, uh, another translation might say tabernacles, uh, was at hand. Okay, that gives us the content. Then we either go to the next page or scroll down or whatever to verses 37 and 38. It says, now on the last day of the feast, now somebody who knows about both 
what the Torah, the five books of Moses, says about tabernacles and some traditions, we'll pick up on a few things. Ah, the last day of the feast. It's a week-long festival. The last day is called the Hoshana Rabbah, basically the great day of the feast. That was a special day. You know, John didn't write that. Oh, by the way, no, there was a reason for that. And once again, he said, whoever thirsts, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. And he talks, of course, about living water. Now, when we read John chapter four, uh, he's with a woman at the well. So we know, okay, it makes sense. That's a good metaphor. They're at a well. <laughs> They're already talking about water. And he says living water. But why does he say it here? And why in Jerusalem? Why on Sukkot or tabernacles? And why on the last day? Well, we know that there were festivals or rather ceremonies that are not mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, they're mentioned actually in the book of Maccabees, uh, which is second temple uh, literature. And we know that on tabernacles, specifically the last day, there were a couple of ceremonies. One was uh, all about light. It was a festival of light. And that's basically the same time Jesus said, not specifically in that passage, but when he said, I am the light of the world, I think there's a connection to that. But regarding uh, living water, there was a ceremony which started inside the temple with a few hot, with the, the priests, and he would take one basin of water and pour it into the other basin. And eventually they'd have many, many basins filled with water. And there was somebody playing the flute and the tambourine, and they would go even to the pool of Siloam, you know, John 9. And everyone was praising God for water. Um, I could bear witness. I live in the Middle East. Water is really good <laughs> and really important. And so they're praising God for their harvest. It's also, it has a few purposes, but it's a harvest festival. And uh, on that very day, the last day of the feast, when Jesus said those words, perhaps people could still hear the flute players in the background or maybe they were walking around with the water. Maybe the ceremony ended an hour ago, uh, but it was the same day they were in Jerusalem. Everybody knew it. You know, If you're in the right city where Super Bowl Sunday is taking place, even if you're not a sports fan, you know it's Super Bowl Sunday. So everybody knew about this tradition about the water. And that's why he bridged the gap. Um, so there are a lot of things like that, which could help. Oh, okay. That would have been really important to them. He's kind of saying, you know, uh, tabernacles, that's, that's really good. It's good to praise God for the crops and for water, but he's got something greater. Come to me and I'll give you a reason to rejoice. So there are a lot of things like that, which uh, may not add something necessarily new, but it would deepen perhaps what we already know yeah, and I think those are just beautiful layers to add to that um, in, in such a helpful way that illuminates, I think, just the power. Because again, sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, we forget that Jesus spoke and, and lived and taught during a specific time to specific people and real ordinary life was going on. And he entered into all that. And that's just, you know, amazing to think about. It wasn't some sterile environment where he kind of drops in from beam down from a UFO or something. I mean, he was, he was fully engaged in a real time and space location with customs and all of those things. And it's just such a beautiful thing that he spoke in all the, in all those ways. And again, we've talked about all these prophecies. We've talked about um, the things that, that kind of fill out this portrait of who Jesus, the Messiah was going to be and who he is. 
and some of this connection, the important context, but obviously this isn't just academic for you. You, you've alluded to this um, even a minute ago and your story um, it's personal for you. So I was wondering, would you share a little bit of your story kind of with us and kind of how this kind of came, came to, I guess, light for you. Okay. Uh, It's a little dangerous sometimes asking a Jewish believer in Jesus, how they, if they start out by talking about Abraham, you're in trouble. You're going to be here for a while. (laughs) I'm just going to go back to my grandparents. Uh, they were actually all from Ukraine, uh, obviously been in the news a lot in this last year. Um, but they were Yiddish-speaking uh, Orthodox Jews. If you've ever seen uh, Fiddler on the Roof, it, it was two million Jews left Eastern Europe uh, in the early 20th century. So it was a huge wave. Most went to New York, and then some went even further to other parts of America. Uh, But that was my grandparents. So my parents were raised as traditional Orthodox Jews in New York City. When I was growing up, still uh, in a lot of ways, very Jewish, but more liberal. So we celebrated the holidays. I had my bar mitzvah, but not as Orthodox Jews. So that was one aspect to my testimony where, especially in those days, the whole idea of Jews even thinking about Jesus has been an explosion in recent decades. It's it's quite remarkable, at least compared to what it used to be. So in those days, the idea of even possibly thinking of Jesus as an option, just way off the charts, it just didn't even exist. So that was one aspect of my upbringing. The other more uh, personally, I suffered from severe depression and even as a very young person thought of suicide. And it wasn't until I went away to college, I went up to Boston, I actually attempted suicide uh, three nights in a row by taking large quantities of pills and alcohol. And uh, it wasn't until about three years later that out of the blue, a Jewish friend of mine told me that she had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I said what virtually every Jewish person says, which it's not right, it's not true, he's not for us. No, I was a Jewish atheist at the time. Um, But I got very curious not um, so much convicted of my sins. I didn't know enough to think in those categories. I was just curious. And I realized I don't know anything about God, the Bible, heaven, hell. I never, I just assumed materialism for various reasons. Uh, So I read through the, not 100% of it, but a lot of the Old Testament. And then I read through the New Testament uh, one and a half times and eventually came to believe it. Obviously a very condensed version of the story. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing in how uh, you found the truth and the hope of the gospel um, and, and and how all those threads from that story wove together. I, I love that. I think, I mean, obviously there's so much more we could, we could unpack there, but talk about a little bit about, and thank you for sharing that with us, by the way. I mean, I'm sure there's people who can resonate with, with feeling that way, with thinking um, in, in those ways and, and just the, but just the reality of the hope and the truth of of Jesus and the light of the world who can come in and change us and forgive us and give us eternal life. So love, I love, I never tire of hearing stories of people coming to know Jesus. So that's, that's amazing. Um, maybe talk about a little bit about what you're doing now and maybe kind of the state of kind of things that you get to work on um, and how you're involved um, kind of living out your calling. And you said um, and kind of what you get to do right now, you've edited these works which are so helpful. Again, a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Christian faith and, a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels with, with Dr. Craig Evans. Um, so to share about what kind of what you're doing now and, and kind of what, what that looks like. 
Well, I am uh, an elder, uh, one of the three people on the pastoral team of a congregation a little bit north of Tel Aviv, a Hebrew-speaking congregation, which also has translation. Actually, we have a lot of Russian speakers uh, in, in the last year where people are constantly still coming to Israel, especially because of uh, what's happening now. Um, we have over 100 people, which by Israel standards is almost a mega church. <laughs> you know, we're not on the same standards as uh, the U.S. Uh, it's one of the older congregations. It's been around over 30 years. So uh, between home groups and preaching and various things, practically, that's uh, my main involvement. And uh, I am on the faculty of Israel College of the Bible, which is part of the umbrella of what's called One for Israel. O-N-E-F-O-R, Israel.org, and it's a group that does a lot of videos, not only in Hebrew, but in Arabic, testimonies, apologetics, evangelism, and it's really had an impact. Uh, the number of hits on these various videos, it's amazing because even the ones that are all in Hebrew, even the ones that don't have English uh, subtitles, the number of times they've been watched just in Israel is greater than the population of Israel. So, you know, it's, it's quite amazing uh, how, how uh, things are going and how the gospel is spreading. So uh, whether or not there's going to be a third book in the series, a handbook, uh, where we're debating that now. So I, I don't have any specific news on that, but I'm sure there'll be something, definitely some other writing projects from the college, whether depending on what role I might have. So th those are those are some of the things I'm involved in. Well, that's so exciting to hear. And again, I'm just really grateful for your kind of expertise and your heart for the gospel and just kind of un unpacking and illuminating some of these passages around the prophecies of Jesus, the Messiah uh, with us today. Thank you for your work of of working on these books, these handbooks, I encourage people to check out these books. Again, my guest today has been Dr. David Mishkin um, in a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Christian faith and a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. And so just definitely encourage you to add those to your library to learn more about kind of the context and how these things fit together. So again, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.